Well, if you would turn to Joshua chapter 8. As you know, I've been preaching through the book of Joshua. We've come to this 8th chapter. And let's begin by reading this chapter of Scripture together. And remember as we read, this is God's holy word, inspired and inerrant. Let's read together. Joshua 8, beginning in verse 1. And the Lord said to Joshua, Do not fear and do not be dismayed. Take all the fighting men with you and arise and go up to Ai. See, I have given into your hand the king of Ai and his people, his city, and the land. And you shall do to Ai and its king as you did to Jericho and its king. Only its spoil and its livestock you shall take as plunder for yourselves. Lay an ambush against the city behind it. So Joshua and the fighting men arose to go up to Ai. And Joshua chose 30,000 mighty men of valor and sent them out by night. And he commanded them, Behold, you shall lie in ambush against the city behind it. Do not go very far from the city, but all of you remain ready. And I and all the people who are with me will approach the city. And when they come out against us, just as before, we shall flee before them. And they will come out after us and until we have drawn them away from the city. For they will say, they are fleeing from us just as before. So we will flee before them. Then you shall rise up from the ambush and seize the city, for the Lord your God will give it into your hand. And as soon as you have taken the city, you shall set the city on fire. You shall do according to the word of the Lord. See, I have commanded you. So Joshua sent them out, and they went to the place of ambush and lay between Bethel and Ai, to the west of Ai. But Joshua spent the night among the people. Joshua arose early in the morning and mustered the people and went up, he and the elders of Israel, before the people of Ai. And all the fighting men who were with him went up and drew near before the city and encamped on the north side of Ai with a ravine between them and Ai. He took about 5,000 men and set them in ambush between Bethel and Ai to the west of the city. So they stationed the forces, the main encampment that was north of the city and its rear guard west of the city. But Joshua spent that night in the valley. And as soon as the king of Ai saw this, he and all his people, the men of the city, hurried and went out early to the appointed place toward the Arabah to meet Israel in battle. But he did not know that there was an ambush against him behind the city. And Joshua and all Israel pretended to be beaten before them and fled in the direction of the wilderness. So all the people who were in the city were called together to pursue them, and as they pursued Joshua, they were drawn away from the city. Not a man was left in Ai or Bethel who did not go out after Israel. They left the city open and pursued Israel. Then the Lord said to Joshua, Stretch out the javelin that is in your hand toward Ai, for I will give it into your hand. And Joshua stretched out the javelin that was in his hand toward the city, And the men in the ambush rose quickly out of their place, and as soon as they had stretched out his hand, they ran and entered the city and captured it. And they hurried to set the city on fire. So when the men of Ai looked back, behold, the smoke of the city went up to heaven, and they had no power to flee this way or that. For the people who fled to the wilderness turned back against the pursuers. And when Joshua and all Israel saw that the ambush had captured the city and that the smoke of the city went up, then they turned back and struck down the men of Ai. And the others came out from the city against them so that they were in the midst of Israel, some on this side and some on that side. And Israel struck them down until there was not left that sur- none left that survived and escaped. But the king of Ai they took alive and brought him near to Joshua. 
When Israel had finished killing all the inhabitants of Ai in the open wilderness where they pursued them, and all of them to the very last had fallen by the edge of the sword, all Israel returned to Ai and struck it down with the edge of the sword. And all who fell that day, both men and women, were twelve thousand, all the people of Ai. But Joshua did not draw back his hand with which he stretched out the javelin until he had devoted all the inhabitants of Ai to destruction. Only the livestock and the spoil of that city Israel took as their plunder, according to the word of the Lord that he commanded Joshua. So Joshua burned Ai and made it forever a heap of ruins as it is to this day. And he hanged the king of Ai on a tree until evening. And at sunset, Joshua commanded, and they took his body down from the tree and threw it at the entrance of the gate of the city and raised over it a great heap of stones, which stands there to this day. At that time, Joshua built an altar to the Lord, the God of Israel, on Mount Ebal, just as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded the people of Israel, as it is written in the book of the law of Moses, an altar of uncut stones upon which no man has wielded an iron tool. And they offered on it burnt offerings and to the Lord and sacrificed peace offerings. And there in the presence of the people of Israel, he wrote on the stones a copy of the law of Moses, which he had written. And all Israel sojourned as sojourner as well as native born with their elders and officers and their judges stood on opposite sides of the ark before the Levitical priests who carried the ark of the covenant of the Lord, half of them in front of Mount Gerizim and half of them in front of Mount Ebal, just as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded at first to bless the people of Israel. And afterward, he read all the words of the law. The blessing and the curse, according to all that is written in the book of the law. There was not a word of all that Moses commanded that Joshua did not read before all the assembly of Israel and the women and the little ones and the sojourners who lived among them. Amen. That's the reading of God's word. You know, God's people are prone to be unfaithful to him. And this is true even of us as New Covenant Christians Why? Because while we're born again of the Spirit, we still have remaining sin. So our lives as Christians are going to be marked by instances of spiritual failure. Sometimes these failures will be relatively minor. You know, we'll lose our temper with our children, we'll argue with our wife, we'll be unfaithful with our money, we'll let a curse word slip when we hit our thumb with a hammer. But at other times, the spiritual failures of Christians can be quite significant. Becoming estranged, for instance, from your children because of years of angry, domineering behavior. Betraying your spouse through an act of infidelity. Plunging yourself into debt in order to feed a secret addiction. Or destroying a friendship through vengeful gossip. Sometimes the spiritual failures of Christians are so momentous and so destructive that that Christian might think there's no hope of being forgiven, of being restored to God. And that type of despair can even lead a Christian to feel like there is no hope and the only way out is even suicide. But Joshua 8 is one of many passages in Scripture which speak and teach us not to give in to despair over our spiritual failures. Let me show you what I mean. Let's walk through this story in Joshua 8 once again, and just allow me to unpack it in greater detail. Last Sunday, we looked at Joshua 7. 
Now, fresh off a resounding victory over this larger city of Jericho, Israel had attacked, in Joshua 7, a smaller city named Ai, and they were routed. They soon discovered that their defeat was because of terrible spiritual failure. They had transgressed the covenant of the Lord that they had made with him when Achan stole some of the devoted things from the city of Jericho. And the Lord told them that he would not be with them anymore unless they removed the devoted things from their midst and put Achan to death for his crime. Under Joshua's leadership, of course, they had done that very thing. And when that happened, we were told at the end of the chapter, chapter 7, the Lord turned from his burning anger against Israel. Now, chapter 8 picks up right where chapter 7 left off. In fact, chapters 7 and 8 of Joshua are like parts 1 and 2 of the same story. Chapter 7 is about how Israel broke her covenant with God and was disciplined by him for it. Chapter 8 is about how Israel renewed their covenant with God and was restored. Let's see how that second part of the story played out. So now that Israel had done what was necessary to set things right with him by the end of chapter 7, the Lord said to Joshua now in chapter 8, verses 1 and 2, Do not fear and do not be dismayed. Take all the fighting men with you and arise and go up to Ai. See, I have given into your hand the king of Ai and his people, his city and his land. And you shall do to it and its king as you did to Jericho and its king. Only its spoil and its livestock you shall take as plunder for yourselves. Lay an ambush against the city behind it. Now, everything about these opening lines of chapter 8 stands in stark contrast to what we had seen in chapter 7. In chapter 7, Joshua initiated an attack upon Ai without consulting the Lord. Here in chapter 8, verses 1 and 2, the Lord initiated the attack upon Ai as he had done with the city of Jericho. In chapter 7, the spies suggested sending only a few thousand troops to attack Ai, Here in chapter 8, verses 1 through 2, the Lord instructs Joshua to take the entire army of Israel up to attack Ai. In chapter 7, the Israelites had been routed by the men of Ai because the Lord was not with them, and their hearts melted with fear. Here in chapter 8, verses 1 and 2, the Lord told Joshua not to fear or be dismayed, For he would once again be with them, and he would give the city of Ai into their hands, as he had done with Jericho. In chapter 7, Joshua had relied upon his own strategy, thinking Israel could easily conquer Ai, just by a full head-on attack. Here in chapter 8, verses 1 through 2, the Lord provides the strategy for defeating Ai, and it would be through a ruse rather than a head-on attack. Now, these contrasts, I think, highlight two important principles. First, whereas Israel had acted in proud self-reliance when they tried to attack Ai back in chapter 7, the Lord's words here in 8, 1 through 2, reminded them that the battle belonged to him, not them. And so they must simply and humbly trust in him to give them the victory. And then second, 
Whereas Israel had foolishly developed their own plan for defeating the city of Ai in chapter 7, the Lord's words here in 8, 1 through 2 remind them that the battle would be one God's way, not theirs. So they must look to him to provide the battle plan. And you know, as we reflect on it, these principles apply to our own spiritual battles as Christians. In 1 Timothy 6, verse 12, Paul described the Christian life as the good fight of faith. It, it consists in following Jesus, that is, believing his teaching and obeying his commands amid attacks, attacks from the devil, attacks from the world system, attack from our own sinful nature. And this battle is waged both at the individual level as we strive, for instance, to say no to ungodliness and worldly lusts and live self, self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. But this battle also is waged at the corporate level as we strive, for instance, to, as a church, ward off false teaching and hold fast to the sound doctrine of Scripture. Well, Joshua 8, 1 and 2 reminds us that As we fight the good fight of faith, we must not do so with proud self-reliance, but rather we must humbly trust in the Lord to give us the victory. In other words, we must look to him in prayer, knowing it's only by his power, the power of the indwelling spirit, that we have any hope of success against the terrible enemies that we face. And Joshua 8, 1 through 2 also reminds us that as we fight this good fight of faith, we must look to God to provide the plan of battle, knowing that the battle will be won his way, not ours. So rather than looking, for instance, to man-made ideas and strategies for such things as self-improvement or church growth, the church must look to the Word of God to tell us as Christians what it means, for instance, and how to be sanctified or how to build the church. Well, after receiving encouragement and instruction from the Lord about how to proceed with the conquest of I in verses 1 and 2, we see that Joshua turned around and he relayed these instructions to Israel, except you'll notice that the instructions he gives to Israel are far more detailed than those that God had given to him. The Lord had simply said to Joshua, lay an ambush against the city behind it, verse 2. In verses 3 through 8, Joshua chose 30,000 fighting men to carry out the ambush. He gave them very specific instructions about how the ambush would play out. He told them to sneak around behind I and lie in wait while Joshua led the main part of Israel's army to approach the city from the front. And when the army of Ai came out to attack the army of Israel, Joshua would lead them, uh, lead Israel to flee from them. Uh, as they had done before, to draw the army of Ai away from the city. And at that point, the 30,000 Israelite soldiers lying in wait behind the city would rise up and enter it and immediately set it on fire. Now, as we see Joshua relay these detailed instructions, it becomes evident that while the Lord had given Joshua this general plan for using an ambush to capture the city of Ai, he left it to Joshua to work out all the specifics. And incidentally, it's just... Uh, an occasion for us to pause and recognize that's often how God does it with the church as well. It's important for the church to recognize that God has given us a sufficient word so that everything we need 
for life and godliness has been provided to us in the Bible. By looking to Scripture, the Christian can be equipped for every good work. But the Bible, while it does give us many specific things to do, doesn't always tell us all the details of how to work that out. And so what are we to do? Well, our responsibility as we live out our Christian life is to be careful to do everything that he has commanded us in the scripture, but to give each other room to work out certain details which God has not explicitly prescribed according to principles of wisdom and common sense, just as we see Joshua doing in this passage. Well, after instructing the 30,000 Israelites who were to lie in wait behind the city, verses 3 through 8, The rest of the section, verses 9 through 29, give a long, detailed account of how this battle of Ai unfolded. So the city of Ai was relatively small, wasn't it? It made this a fairly fairly minor victory for the nation of Israel in the bigger picture of the conquest of Canaan. And yet, no other battle in the book of Joshua. Indeed, I can't think of another battle in the entire Bible that is described in such detail. And this sort of raises the question for us, why did the author of Joshua, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, decide to give us this sort of blow-by-blow account of this minor battle? I think Phillips Long gets it, starts to get at the answer anyway, when he says, the passage goes into great detail for a small battle, probably to emphasize that success comes only from following the Lord's instructions. In other words, the point of this lengthy description of the battle of Ai is basically the same point of the lengthy description of the battle of Jericho, isn't it? To drive home this point to us as the readers, that the only way Israel was able to conquer any city, whether large or small, was by following the Lord's lead. That is why he ordered them, for instance, to take this city by way of a a ruse rather than a frontal assault so that they would learn, this is not accomplished by your overwhelming military power. It's accomplished by listening to me and doing what I say. That's how you will defeat your enemies. And that's a lesson God's people need to be reminded of again and again in every generation, including our own. So here's how the battle of Ai unfolded. In verse 9, it says that Joshua sent out these 30,000 soldiers to go to the place of ambush. And so they went out by night and they, they lay in wait west of the city. Joshua, meanwhile, stayed in the camp of Israel that night. And in the morning, we're told, verses 10 and 11, he mustered the entire army of Israel. He led them up to a camp, uh, to camp on the hill just north of Ai across a little ravine. Now, verse 12 throws a little bit of a wrench in the story because it says that Joshua took about 5,000 men and set them in ambush between Bethel and I to the west of the city. Now, this is confusing because according to verses 3 through 9, Joshua had already sent 30,000 soldiers to do that same thing the night before. So what are we to make of this? You know, some people have suggested that the Hebrew text could be interpreted as saying, that the 30,000 in verse 3 is the main part of Israel's army, while the 5,000 in verse 12 is the smaller ambush force. And that's a very attractive uh, conclusion, but I think it really requires a very strained reading of the text. 
So others have suggested that the 30,000 in verse 3 and the 5,000 in verse 12 are actually referring to the same ambush force. Now that allows you to read the text in a more straightforward way, doesn't it? But it requires you to do funny things with the numbers in order to reconcile the 30,000 with the 5,000. A third possibility is just to say that Joshua sent out two ambush forces. He sent out 30,000 men one day and another 5,000 men the other day. And that seems to me to be the most straightforward and perhaps the best way to read the text. It just leaves you wondering, well, why would Joshua do that? Well, who knows? I don't know. Uh, Perhaps after being so soundly defeated by the men of Ai uh, the first time around, after a night's rest, he decided, you know, 5,000 more troops might be a good idea just to be safe. Whatever the case, verse 13 tells us that Joshua waited another night before attacking, perhaps to allow that additional 5,000-man force to join the other ambush force. And then finally, once everyone's in position, the main body of Israel's army north of the city, the ambush forces west of the city behind it in hiding, it says in verse 14, as soon as the king of Ai saw this, he and all his people, the men of the city, hurried and went out early to the appointed place toward the Arabah to meet Israel in battle. But he did not know that there was an ambush against him behind the city. So in other words, the king of Ai, he sees Israel's army camped just across the ravine from his city. And he went out to attack them as he had done before, not realizing that he was walking into a trap. And next we're told in verse 14, 15 that Joshua and all Israel pretended to be beaten before them and fled in the direction of the wilderness. So the army of Ai fell for this ruse, thinking they were poised to rout the armies of Israel for a second time. The men of Ai completely abandoned the city now to join the chase of the Israelite army And they even leave the gates of the city open behind them. That's what it says in verse 17. Not a man was left in Ai or Bethel who did not go out after Israel. They left the city open and pursued Israel. So Joshua's trickery worked better than he ever could have hoped. It was almost as if God himself was behind uh, its success. Wink, wink. In fact, verse 18 tells us that at this very point in the battle, the Lord himself stepped in, spoke directly to Joshua, and told him to trigger the ambush. So the Lord wants to take the lead here. He says, stretch out the javelin that is in your hand toward I, for I will give it into your hand. Now it's possible that this act of lifting up the javelin was actually a visible signal that the ambush forces would be watching for. But to me, it seems unlikely that they would have been able to see it from such far away distance. More likely, it's actually intended to, for all the army of Israel that could see, to connect Israel's impending victory in battle with the Lord's own supernatural power. So, as long as Joshua kept this javelin aloft as God had commanded, the armies of Israel would be able to defeat the army of Ai in battle. And indeed, we see in verse 26, Joshua did not draw back his hand with which he stretched out the javelin until he had devoted all the inhabitants of Ai to destruction. 
You know, this interpretation, I think, is confirmed by the fact that you might even be recognizing this event is clearly echoing another event, a previous event in the history of Israel. In Exodus 17, when the Lord gave Israel victory over the Amalekites as long as Moses held aloft the staff of God. In fact, Exodus 17.11 says, Whenever Moses held up his hand, Israel prevailed. Whenever his hand lowered, the Amalekites prevailed. So eventually Aaron and Hur had to hold Moses' hand up until the battle was finally over. And the point of that event was not that there was some kind of magical power in the staff of Moses, but to show for all Israel, that the victory that they were winning was from the Lord, not from their own military might. And it seems something similar is going on here in Joshua 8, so that as we read through this battle, we don't start thinking to ourselves, wow, Israel's really good. They're winning by their own strength. Verses 19-23 describe the defeat of, and the destruction of the army of Ai on the field of battle. So after Joshua raised his javelin, the ambush forces stationed west of Ai arose, entered the open gates of the city, and since there were no soldiers left in it, they obviously captured it fairly easily, and they began setting the buildings of the city on fire. And when Joshua and the main part of Israel's army saw the smoke rising up from the city, they knew their feigned flight had been successful, and so they stopped running, and they turned, and they fought their pursuers. And the men of Ai realized their mistake too late, because the ambush forces came out of the city to cut off their retreat, and they were quickly surrounded by the much larger Israelite army, which proceeded to wipe them out. Their fate is described there in verses 22 through 23, where it says, And Israel struck them down until there was none left that survived or escaped. But the king of Ai they took alive and brought him near to Joshua. Remember, however, it wasn't just the Canaanite armies which Israel was commanded by God to destroy. It was all the inhabitants of Canaan. And so we remember his command through Moses in Deuteronomy 20:17 when he had said but in the cities of these peoples that the Lord your God has given you for inheritance you shall save alive nothing that breathes but you shall devote them to complete destruction the Hittites the Amorites the Canaanites and the Perizzites the Hivites and the Jebusites as the Lord your God has commanded and so we read this very solemn account in verses 24 through 28 of how Israel fulfilled that command with respect to the inhabitants of Ai. Let's read it again and let it fall upon our ears. It says, When Israel had finished killing all the inhabitants of Ai in the open wilderness where they pursued them, and all of them to the very least had fallen by the edge of the sword, all Israel returned to Ai and struck it down with the edge of the sword. And all who fell that day, both men and women, were 12,000, all the people of Ai. But Joshua did not draw back his hand, with which he stretched out the javelin, till he had devoted all the inhabitants of Ai to destruction. Only the livestock and the spoil of the city took, Israel took as plunder, according to the word of the Lord that he commanded Joshua. So Joshua burned Ai and made it forever a heap of ruins as it is to this day. Well, here we go. This is one of the shocking, those shocking descriptions in the book of Joshua of Israel devoting the entire population of Canaanite cities to complete destruction at God's behest. 
No one was spared, neither men nor women, young or old. All were put to death. And the text is very clear on this. It says the only living creatures in I allowed to live were their livestock, which Israel was permitted to take along with uh, other valuables as plunder. And God had told them to do all this. You know, these are among the texts which atheists have pointed out as evidence that, you know, the God of the Bible is some kind of moral monster. And liberal Protestant Christians have rejected these kinds of texts as, you know, primitive depictions of God from an unenlightened past that we can now look at and, and sort of ignore as mistaken ideas about him. Even many evangelicals who profess to believe that all scripture is inspired and inerrant balk at these passages, either choosing to sort of ignore them or to find creative ways to interpret them so that they're more palatable to our sensibilities. But I want to suggest, indeed, I think that God requires another response to this text and others like it. We must understand it accurately, of course, then accept it as true and allow it to shape our thinking. You know, you'll remember I preached an entire sermon at the beginning of this series titled, Did God Commit Genocide? Understanding the Destruction of the Canaanites. And that was really designed to help you to do that very thing. And I encourage you to go back and listen to that sermon if you've missed it or if you don't remember what I said and you're struggling now. But let me just take this occasion to reiterate some of the main points that I said for you now. How can we come to grips with the fact that God told Israel to devote all the inhabitants of Ai and other cities as well to complete destruction? Well, first, we have to understand the magnitude of God's holiness. He is perfectly righteous, pure, and beautiful. Even the holy angels cover themselves before His radiant glory. And second, we have to understand the gravity of human sin. Even the smallest single act of disobedience, like Adam and Eve eating a single piece of fruit, is cosmic treason against God. It it is to say to God who made us in his image so that we might flourish under his loving care that we don't want him as our king that we will not submit to his will, that we will determine what is right and wrong for ourselves and act upon it. Thank you very much. Third, we must understand that the first man, Adam, was our representative head. And that when he committed that first sin in history, that his guilt and corruption was passed down to all humanity. So all human beings, except Jesus, of course, We're born guilty sinners because of Adam. And then fourth, we must understand that as the creator of mankind, God is the judge of all the earth. And the penalty which his perfect justice demands for human sin is death, including physical death. And since every human being is a guilty sinner... This means that God is perfectly just to put any or all human beings, man or woman, young or old, to death at any point. And indeed, we sometimes see him doing that throughout the Bible, if you think about it, don't we? Fifth, when God does choose to put people to death as a judgment for sin, he sometimes does it directly. You know, one thinks of the flood in Genesis 6-9, through or the plague, the tenth plague upon Egypt where he killed all the firstborn. But 
He doesn't have to do it directly. Sometimes he uses human beings as an instrument of his judgment. So one thinks of how he used the Babylonian armies to destroy the city of Jerusalem for their sin. Or one thinks of how he raised up that man Jehu to wipe out the house of Ahab as a judgment against him. So when we come now to the book of Joshua, and we see the Israelites devoting the Canaanites to complete destruction at God's behest, we must realize that this is not some wicked genocide ordered by a maniacal God, carried out by uh, bloodthirsty people for wicked motives. This is a holy God executing his just judgment upon a group of sinful human beings whose iniquity, by the way, had reached a breaking point at the hands of other human beings. And it is perfectly appropriate for God to do this. Then finally, six, let me just say that all of these smaller judgment events in history, such as the destruction of the Canaanites here in the book of Joshua, are leading up to a final day of judgment at the end of the age. And they're giving us a foretaste of what that will be like. Only the final day of judgment will be far, far more terrible than any time that God has put to death people for their sins in this life. Because on that day, he will, as we see, for instance, in 2 Peter 3, devote the entire earth and everything in it to complete destruction by fire. And then he will cast people into hell for all eternity who have not repented and believed in his Son. So I want to suggest that if we are finding ourselves sort of balking at the judgment of God upon the Canaanites for their sin in the book of Joshua, we either are unaware of or have lost appreciation for the solemn descriptions of that final day of judgment in passages like 2 Thessalonians 1 or 2 Peter 3 or Revelation 19 and 20, to which this destruction of the Canaanites is merely a harbinger. So you see, if we view this account of I's destruction through the lens of these biblical truths and come to accept it as a proper display of God's just judgment upon sinners, then how should it affect our thinking? Well, if you're an unbeliever here this morning, it should lead you to consider the judgment that is coming upon the world, that is coming upon you, and to fear what will happen to you when that day comes. So that you might recognize, oh, this is what these Christians are talking about by salvation. I need to be saved. I think of the words of Jesus in Luke 13, 3, where he said, Unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. But if you are a Christian here today, then this sobering account of God's judgment meted out upon the the city of Ai at the hands of the Israelites It should remind you of how God has saved you from his judgment through his son, Jesus Christ. Indeed, that leads us, I think, to the next thing that happened in Joshua 8. You might remember, back in verse 23, it says that the army of Israel kept the king of Ai alive and brought him to Joshua. Well, in verse 29, it tells us what Joshua did to him. It says, And he hanged the king of Ai on a tree until evening. 
And at sunset, Joshua commanded, and they took his body down from the tree and threw it at the entrance of the gate of the city and raised over it a great heap of stones, which stands there to this day. Did you know that act was not just, you know, it's not like Joshua just came up with it. He was actually acting in accordance with the law of God. In Deuteronomy 21, 22 through 23, there it said, And if a man has committed a crime punishable by death, and he is put to death, and you hang him on a tree, his body shall not remain all night on the tree, but you shall bury him the same day, for a hanged man is cursed by God. In other words, by hanging the body of the king of Ai on a tree till evening, Joshua was making a public statement according to the command of God, that this man was under God's curse for his sin and he had received the just punishment of death. Now, one cannot help recognizing a connection between what happened to the king of Ai and what has happened to our own king, the Lord Jesus Christ. The Apostle Paul once described Jesus as receiving the same punishment as the king of Ai. When he died upon the cross, he even cited Deuteronomy 21, 22 through 23, except Paul pointed out that when Christ hung upon a tree as a man under the curse of God, who had received the just punishment of death, it wasn't for his own sin, but for ours. Let me read to you his words. Galatians 3, 13 through 14, he says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree, so that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised Spirit through faith. You see, when we read about the judgment of God that fell upon the people of I and its king, we who are Christians should be filled with relief and joy when we remember the good news. That our King, Jesus Christ, has borne the judgment that we deserved for our sins in our place when he hung upon that rugged tree. So that we who have believed in him might be saved and might receive the promise, Holy Spirit, who has lavished upon us the blessings of God out of his free favor. And here we find, don't we, the truest source of our love and loyalty to Jesus who loved us and gave himself for us in this way. There is nothing that he cannot ask of us now when he has given all for us. And oh, lost sinner, in this room, this hope of salvation from the judgment of God through the death of his son, Jesus Christ, is offered to you as well. If you will only repent and believe in him. And I pray that you will do that even this morning. But finally, we turn to that closing section of the chapter, which which is inserted after Israel's conquest of Ai. And I say it's inserted because there are good reasons, I think, to believe that the events recorded in verses 30-35 did not actually occur directly after the events in verses 1-29. through You know, the stories in biblical books are sometimes arranged thematically rather than chronologically. And this may very well be an example of that. And if so, we should ask why the author placed it after the events of Joshua 7 through 8. And I want to suggest it's actually pretty obvious. 
chapters 7 through 8 are all about a time when Israel broke faith with the Lord. They violated, they transgressed their covenant with God, but they were forgiven by Him and they were restored by Him when they repented. These verses attached to the end of that story describe a time when Israel renewed their covenant with God. They built an altar, they offered peace offerings and sin offerings upon it. Joshua engraved a copy of the law of Moses on the stones of the altar. He then read the entire law to the people so as they stood on two sides of a mountain listening. And all of this was something that God had told them to do when they came into the land, according to Deuteronomy 7, 27, 1 through 26, as a way of renewing their commitment to be faithful to the covenant they had made with God on Mount Sinai. Now, when you understand that, you can see why the author put it here at the end of the story of Joshua 7 and 8, which involved Israel breaking their covenant with God. It pointed the reader to the way forward after spiritual failures. When they were unfaithful to God by breaking His commands, they were to repent. And He would forgive and restore them out of His mercy and grace. And then they were to respond to His grace by renewing their covenant to be faithful to Him once again. You know, as we finish walking through Joshua 8, this final note, it really points us to the main point of this entire story, I think. What is the primary thing that Joshua 8 is teaching us as believers who who read it now, centuries later? It's speaking to us as people who are prone to be unfaithful to God. And it's giving us hope that God is willing to forgive and to restore us when we repent and when we renew our commitment to be faithful to Him. You know, in Joshua 8... God forgave Israel by His grace when they repented of transgressing their covenant with Him in the matter of Achan, and then He restored them. He gave them victory over I. And then in the next stage of their conquest, even as they renewed their covenant with Him. Well, in a similar way, God is willing to forgive us by His grace in Christ when we repent after falling into sin. He's willing to restore us so that we can enjoy sweet fellowship with Him. We can experience the blessing of a clear conscience before Him once again and the joy of our salvation as we renew our commitment to be faithful to Him as He has been so merciful to us. There's our hope, believers. There's hope for us on the other side of spiritual failures, whether it's small failures or large. Oh, it may involve painful exposure, It may involve lasting consequences, but when we humbly repent of our transgressions, we will find God ready to forgive. Why? Because of the once-for-all sacrifice of His Son for our sins and His ongoing intercession for us at the right hand of God. And as we renew our commitment to be faithful to God on the other side of spiritual failures, we will find Him ready to restore the years that the locusts of sin have eaten. You know, this is what David envisioned and what he sought I think in Psalm 51, after he sinned so terribly with Bathsheba, he penned these precious words. He said, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin, for I know my transgression and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. 
Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. Failure. Repentance. Restoration. You know, whenever we fail, the nation of Israel did in Joshua 7. Let these words be on your tongue, that it might find, that we might find the kind of forgiveness and restoration which Israel found in Joshua 8. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the sweet instruction of it, how it is a light to our path, how it renews and restores us, how it wounds us and heals us. And we thank you for these chapters in Joshua 7 and 8 and the truths that they convey to our hearts. We pray that you would help us to take them to heart, to appropriate them in our lives by faith, to live them out, to walk in accordance with them so that you might be glorified in our lives and we might be filled with gratitude and love for you. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.